The following audio drama contains some swearing and mild peril. Listener discretion is advised. An Absence, written, read and produced by Alex C.F. The house was cold. Josh was used to cold houses. His mother had refused to ever put the heating on unless it went below zero. Put a sweater on became the winter mantra, one Josh never fully agreed with. His mother had terrible circulation and no amount of sweaters ever seemed to make him feel warm, so he wondered how his mother coped. He discovered his mother's stubbornness in this, that powerful act of denial, that feeling cold was a mechanism of nature and despite the invention of modern central heating, it was better to suffer than to spend money. As a result, most frigid weekends were spent wrapped in a duvet, pulling a loose corner or an exposed foot in and sealing it away from the icy room. Now an adult, he had similar frugal feelings about central heating, although his partner Maggie liked a warm house. This house wasn't cold in that way in any case. Yes, it was genuinely cold, having been vacant for over a year. This was an absence of any kind of warmth. It was an emotion, a bereft chill. The floorboards in the hall, although fashionably exposed, were a pallid grey. The decor was dated laminate and white linoleum, which Maggie had christened Morgue Chic. The windows were smeared as though someone had haphazardly wiped them down with an unclean rag. The sultry white of an overcast sky shed that shadowless, encompassing light, diffused by the filthy glass, the light which, like the cold, seemed to be ambient, directionless. Maggie pushed the door open with her back, carrying a large box full of books. Josh took the box from her, noticing a few standout titles. I didn't know we owned this. Maggie rolled her eyes. We drag books from house to house, some we've read, some we apparently didn't even know we owned. So what purpose do they serve? Apart from being fucking heavy. He smiled. They say, look at me, I read, I have a collection of books. Maggie picked up the tattered title Josh had noticed. I wouldn't let people judge you based on your collection, love. Josh shrugged and went back outside. They had hijacked their friend's van for the weekend, which meant unpacking wasn't urgent. Josh picked up an assortment of items, realising he could carry more and reached for a bedside lamp. It promptly rolled out of his arms and onto the gravel drive. Josh winced. It thankfully didn't break. He leant down to pick it up, glancing up at the house. The house was part of a small community, a quiet cul-de-sac in North London. It was set back from the road and flanked by two very large pine trees. It had a built-in garage, an anemic blue-grey paint job and large feature windows in the roof. The house needed a lot of work. New wiring throughout, a modern gas boiler and a rather ugly shed with an asbestos roof at the end of the garden that would need to be removed. They had scrounged from their collective parents and managed to borrow a good amount to try their luck at auction. Against all odds, they placed the winning bid, £10,000 over their limit. After some light mental gymnastics, they agreed that the appreciation of value once they had completed all of their repair work was worth it, but it would be baked beans and instant noodles for dinner for a few years. He carried the box awkwardly, lamp wire dragging between his legs, into the house. 
Maggie had managed to position the bookshelf in the lounge and had placed a few books upon it. He took his box and placed it beside the first. A few hours later and the van was empty. They owned far less than this house would need to feel whole. Living out of a small one-bed flat for five years was a far different lifestyle to this four-bedroom family home, complete with dining room and kitchen, with room for a breakfast table. They made some pasta and used up the small, miserable block of sweating cheese they had rescued from the fridge before the move and sat together on the sofa. This is weird, Maggie smiled. I feel like we are doing a fine performance of adulting. Josh grinned. Massive debt and gruelling commute, the two signs of success. They decided to call it a day. They lay in a loose embrace, his arm over her, until the comfort faded and they turned away from one another. They both fell fast asleep. The morning brought with it a more favourable light, the glint of a sun unhindered. They made coffee and moved things to their forever places. Once cardboard boxes were empty, the sturdy ones were collapsed and put aside, the rest were torn up and placed in the recycling. Once they had finished, Josh heaved the flattened boxes upstairs and took a moment to find the key to the attic. There was a short staircase, locked from the outside, that they were told was very suitable for renovating, with no need to lay a floor and easy access. Josh had dreamed of a room for his burgeoning Lego obsession. The key hung from a red ribbon next to the bathroom door. He placed it in the lock and it turned without resistance. The boxes were unwieldy, but eventually he guided them up the ten steep steps to the roof. The room was large and had a decent amount of light from the two windows that jutted from the sloping ceiling into a small alcove. One was empty, the other had a built-in seat. Josh placed the boxes against the wall and sought the light switch. The switch was on a string, and as he surveyed the room, he pulled until he felt the familiar click and release. There was a moment, a flinch, the elastic retraction of the cord in his hand, the flex of shoulders, animal, instinctual, to what appeared before him in the filament of time between dark and incandescent light. The shape of the upper torso of a human looking at him, blurring febrile threads that seemed to drift away from the hole, unfocused, incomplete. He steadied himself. There was nothing to see, but he found the edge of the room and walked back to the wall, achingly slowly, the palms of his hands seeking grip and purchase, guiding his body where his eyes would not look, for his eyes lay transfixed on that place where something he could not explain had been. He abruptly stood straight. He shook his head in disbelief and let out an audible sigh of exasperation. What am I doing? He whispered through clenched teeth, leaving the imagined safety of the wall. He gathered his wits and strode out to where the form had been. There was nothing to see, nothing at all. There was a wall that reached from the adjacent side of the roof to the centre of the room, and beyond this, in the far corner, was a collection of vintage furniture, some 70s and early 80s clothing, and a rotary dial telephone. He looked inside the wardrobe, which contained more clothes and two large suitcases filled with printed paper. He ignored it and returned his gaze to the room. The room was still and sparse and did not hold any ill feeling, beyond his own discomfort and embarrassment. He pulled the flattened boxes further into the room, took a moment to look one more time and turned off the light. He stepped down two or three stairs when he heard the boxes he had left propped against the wall fall over. He stopped. The anxious niggle as his brain leapt from possibility to possibility. 
He shook his head again and descended the remaining steps, locking the door behind him once he'd exited the staircase. He hung the key back where he'd found it and continued down to the lounge, where Maggie sat sorting through a few remaining items that hadn't been put away. I always find it easier to decide whether to keep something after I've moved, after I've hefted it from one place to the other. Josh stood next to the couch in deep thought. You okay? she said. He contemplated telling her what he'd seen, but thought better of it. First week in a new home didn't need such worries. Ah, nothing, just tired. Okay, well, let's try to get an early night tonight. What time are you getting up? Josh sighed. Ah, seven. I need at least two hours to make sure I'm on time. Maggie worked as a freelance graphic designer and had found a degree of success over the years, which had gone a long way to guarantee them the mortgage that had bought this house. She had planned to turn one of the bedrooms into an office, but the dining room had a lovely light, so she had set up her computer on the vast oval table for now, one of a number of pieces of furniture left by the previous occupants. She drained the last of her cafetiere, cursing having run out of milk, and texted Josh to pick some up on the way home. She received a yup in response and downed the rest of her coffee, dusting her hands of crumbs from a slice of toast. Josh had dragged himself from bed an hour before she had got up kissing her groggily before tripping over a box of clothes, cursing under his breath, disappearing into a distant rumble of toilet flushes and teeth brushing. Josh left in the van, returning it to their friend before work. From then on, Josh would be taking the overground train and Maggie would keep the car for day-to-day -day use. The weather had become dreary once again, the amorphous grey light that carried with it a damp cloying. She struggled to find flow, leaning back against the creaky chair, she felt that itchy, fidgety ache of an unquiet mind, a mind that desperately needed to knuckle down and finish this project, but anything became a distraction. Chewing the end of her tablet pen, running her foot over the heavy shag carpet so that her sock would roll on and off in a pleasing manner, she walked around the table, imagining what she would do with this room when they had money and time. She stood against the wall, her back flat upon the Artex wallpaper, her fingers tracing the lumps and bumps. Birds sat in trees, feathers puffed up to shelter from the wet air. She decided she was cold and left the room to find the box marked with winter clothing. She climbed the wide stairs. They were deep and carpeted. She liked that she could stride up them or bound effortlessly. When she reached the landing, she made a beeline for the bedroom. Turning on the landing towards her room, she stopped dead. Light fell clear here. In fact, the whole house was open and airy and the windows were placed so that light always had a purchase. The door to their bedroom was at a right angle to one of the spare rooms, and as she turned to open the bedroom door, she had seen a figure standing just inside the adjacent room, half hidden by the door itself. Fuck, she thought. She backed up, reaching into her jeans pocket for her phone. I'm calling the police, she said with a raised voice. I don't know how you got in here, but get the fuck out. Silence. The phone connected and a woman asked which service Maggie required. She said police, and almost immediately another authoritative voice answered. What's the nature of your emergency? There is someone in my house. Hours later and Josh returned home to find a police car parked outside. He went in. Maggie stood at the end of the sofa, hand against her face, her other hand gesticulating. The police officer sat on the corner of the cream couch, phone in hand, making notes. 
Maggie acknowledged Josh, as did the officer. Hi there, I am assuming you're Josh. Josh nodded. Yes, uh, what's happened, Mags? Maggie reported that there was an intruder in the house. We have performed a thorough search of the house, but there doesn't appear to be anybody here, and no windows or doors have been forced. I know that's no reassurance, but I have looked everywhere, and if there was someone here, they are now long gone. As an added precaution, I will suggest that you get your locks changed, just to be on the safe side. Maggie told me that you've just moved in, and new houses come with stress and change. I don't mean to be patronising. I myself moved recently, and I've had my fair share of shocks to the system. Josh assured the officer no offence was taken despite the look of disagreement on Maggie's face, and as the officer handed him his card, he said, I have actually been to this house before. D did you buy this from that old chap, uh, Billingsley? Oh no, we bought it at auction. We, we never met the previous owner, said Josh. The officer gave a look of quiet acceptance, shrugged and made his goodbyes. It was a person, I am sure of it. Maggie would not sit. I'm trying to remember his face. Josh knew better than to suggest alternatives to what Maggie could have seen, especially considering his own experience. She was a pragmatic, grounded person, not quick to scare. She eventually calmed down and sat where the officer had sat. He was about six feet tall. It was like a like a negative, like an inversion of light. It was it was dark. I mean, I mean that doorway in the hall upstairs is so bright. Uh, perhaps it was just shadow cast from the door, but it had that that sense of a person. I'm sure of it. I can't remember features, but a feeling of someone like older, balding. He wasn't young. Josh rubbed his eyes and without looking up, fingers still against his closed eyelids, seeing the kaleidoscope of light patterns in his eyes, he confessed to what he had seen. Okay, I, I saw something too. Maggie turned abruptly to him. Wait, when? She said accusatorially. When I was taking the boxes up into the attic, when I went in, just before I turned on the light, there was someone, like something there, but it was so fleeting that I thought it was like a trick of my eyes or something, like standing up too fast. I saw stars. Fuck, so what are we saying? Josh smiled. I mean, it may be exactly what the officer had said. Stress and anxiety and money worries, that's all got to have a neurological effect. We could be willing our minds to expect such things. It's like a subconscious... Told you not to spend £400,000 on a house. Maggie snorted, rolling back against the cushions. She let out a loud, short, humorless laugh before shifting her weight so that she faced Josh once again. Josh scratched his chin. We get on with sorting stuff out, sorting out the house. I'm sure in a few days we will look back on all this stuff with much clearer heads. There is the aching empty, the pit of a stomach that has not known nourishment. Thoughts are spasming, displaced, untethered. There is a carousel of colour, it splits like a migraine, sharp, needle, incendiary explosions of liquid consciousness. These are sheared, split like timber, and all that is left is the finest connective tissue. It is with this that, for the unsure, inconsistent moments, there is a crumb of calm. But always black, seething molasses black. It seeps without obstacles, without barriers. It is not physical, nor is it thoughtless. It is no more gatekeeper than it is the absence of light. It reaches and pulls me from my calm, my room, my place of peace. There is no such thing as time, no point of reference, 
yet in the brief sharp tug back to that room, the fathomless incomprehensible blackness behind me seems to have held me forever. I do not have the luxury of sight, prisms of faint fields, magnetism like lenses, fabricated of ether, I see with our eyes, a person. The house had taken on a different presence. It was dangerous to think this way, for it could quite possibly render the house unlivable. Josh had taken to leaving lights on throughout the place. Maggie would stubbornly turn them all off. They dined together in the lounge. Josh had installed a very bright, warm light bulb. The TV was on, some raucous bakery show. Framed photos and artwork had been hastily added to the walls. A bright bunch of flowers sat on a side table in a pasta jar, neither of them having ever owned a vase. Josh slurped his food. He smiled at Maggie mid-mouthful. Once he'd finished chewing, he remarked, The house is looking very homely. Maggie nodded. I am being a good little housewife. They laughed, as if in response, a loud clang issued from the kitchen. They both looked at one another, and then a self-aware snigger followed. This is ridiculous. Nothing is happening. We're bloody paranoid. Josh shrugged and made for the source of the sound. He switched on the light, pausing for a moment to survey the kitchen for displaced items. He looked to the sink where he had stacked a large amount of utensils and pans haphazardly on the drying rack. It's just the pans, he shouted. He began to clear away onion skins and carrot peelings. He turned on the hot water tap and ran the chopping board under the water. He finished, wiped his hands dry on the dishcloth and turned to the fridge to pour himself a juice. You want some orange juice? He raised his voice so Maggie could hear. He went for the fridge and caught his reflection in the microwave door. He felt the frigid animal fear once again. It's my fucking reflection, he thought. He heard no answer but poured her a glass anyway. He returned to the lounge and handed her the juice. She thanked him and they sat and watched the rest of the show. At least an hour passed, flicking through endless streaming services to find a decent film to watch, settling on some inane rom-com to help extend this feeling of light-heartedness. Maggie lay sprawled on the sofa, leaning against Josh, whose arm rested across her chest, remote in hand. Losing interest in the film, she flicked lazily through her phone. She could see into the dining room and the large windows beyond. The garden was still very much unkempt, neither of them wishing to deal with the overcrowded brambles and the decaying tree strangled by ivy. She watched the wind tug at the branches. It was dark, but there was enough light pollution to make out the leaves against the sky. That sky was light enough to see the familiar yet often forgotten misshapen forms that skirted about her eyes. They were unattractively named floaters. She had a large blotchy line that traced across her vision. It was rare for her to see this, and it irked her. She glanced at her phone, suddenly concerned, thinking to search for a remedy. She looked back up at the sky to catch the distortion in her vision, as though it might have evaporated in the moment since she noticed it, endlessly trying to focus upon it as it slid across her retina. She considered its shape like that of looking at a single-celled organism under a microscope. The shape then settled, as though she'd captured it. She imagined she looked pretty cross-eyed at that moment, holding the film-like distortion in her crosshairs. The shape then coalesced against the dull orange sky beyond, Striations blossomed, like stop motion. It flickered, stalled, a stilted, unfolding mass. It was suddenly apparent that this was not the vitreous fluid in her eyes. A slow dread fell over her. She nudged Josh, whose face wasn't far from hers. Josh, she whispered. 
What? Why are you whispering? She pointed at the window beyond the door to the lounge. He cocked his head to the side, trying to see what she was pointing at. He noticed the smudge, the smear of light across the window. He frowned. He had cleaned that window the day before. The smudge seemed to detach from the pane, now a distortion that moved independently of the glass. I see it, he uttered with hushed alarm. The dining room was not lit beyond the dim streetlight, a stark contrast to the lounge they sat in. The grainy brown of that room made focusing difficult, and yet the streaks of what? It was not lit, it behaved like water reflecting the light that fell on it. It moved toward them, and although it was five feet off the ground, it did not appear to be floating. Not like dandelion seeds caught on an errant wind, it moved jarringly slow and with a noticeable human-like gait, despite only the upper portion of the form being in any way visible. As it passed from the dining room to the lounge, it was no longer easy to see, a vague blur, static, dizzyingly recognisable static. They both shook uncontrollably, scrabbling over the end of the sofa, their eyes never ceasing to search to keep it within their sights. They backed out of the room, into the hallway, Josh threw Maggie her coat and they pushed their feet into their shoes, half on, half off, they left the house, slamming the front door, making for the car. Maggie unlocked the little hatchback and they climbed in, Maggie in the driver's seat, Josh beside her. They remained silent and still, the aroma of plastic and nylon reassuring. Oh my god. My god, I can't believe it. They watched the window of the lounge attentively. The lights were on. They could make out much of the room. They had no net curtains and the drapes weren't drawn. For a fleeting moment, Josh saw the faint trace of a face and eyes looking out at them. Okay, we need to talk about this, Josh breathed with exasperation. I know this isn't helpful, but all I can think is that scene in Ghostbusters. Free-floating, full-torso, vaporous apparition, Josh replied. Okay, so what is it? Maggie repeated it under her breath, a mantra of sorts, finding some sense of normalcy in the search for a reasonable explanation. Could it just be a reflection, like from my phone or some glassware in the room? It's not a trick of the light. That's three times we have seen the same thing. We aren't drunk. It's not a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato. She shot him a look. A Christmas carol? Really? She sighed. But this isn't indigestion or a mental break or a delusion. I don't see it being anything so pedestrian. Josh pondered for a moment. So scientific explanations for ghosts, he said. Okay, stuff I have read over the years, uh, infrasound, low resonating frequencies that cause your retinas to vibrate, like the resulting distortion is interpreted by our prey animal brains as a threat, often as a human form. This triggers a flight response, apparently. So what could be a source of infrasound? How do we detect those frequencies, she said. I don't know, I, I guess you need special equipment. Another theory is multiple universes that overlap one another, and what we are seeing is glimpses of those realities in which the same spot, in this case our house, in another universe there is a living person standing in that room, thinking that he can see two ghosts sitting on his couch. Oh, I like that, Maggie nodded, but I don't think that's very likely. As likely as the disembodied spirit of a person, the immortal soul trapped between heaven and hell, Josh retorted. Maggie frowned. Okay, for that you have to accept the theistic view of the universe, which neither of us do. I actively find it repellent. In fact, ghosts are such a modern concept, 
and very anthropocentric. Where, where are all the ghost ladybirds, the ghost amoebas, the ghost tyrannosaurs? We would be knee deep in ghosts if, it, if they were a thing. Humans have only been around for, what, a few million years? Why do we get ghost priority? Josh scrolled on his phone. Maybe it's something to do with quantum mechanics. Neither of us know anything about quantum mechanics besides watching a TED talk. How do we work out what this thing is? A Ouija board? A seance? Maggie shook her head. I don't see why any of that would work. It, it's all wishful thinking. I feel like we're in danger of falling into the trap of seeking uneducated, misguided paths to understanding something that most people don't believe in and is yet to be explained. We have to come up with another idea. A pragmatic idea. Consciousness in tatters, dementia-riddled thoughts that bloom and burst, single clear images that wither, a flower filmed in time-lapse, so fast there is no way to know if it ever lived. I am seeing without eyes again, like the early eye, the cells that distinguish light from dark in the primordial seas of a Precambrian earth. There is no evolution of this state, perhaps you will see some semblance of life. I am seeing children, vague blown out movements with no sound. I sense joy running about the house, knocking into things. The jolts seethe and the children are teenagers, doing homework on that big old table where lunch was eaten a hundred thousand times. In silence, the tick of clock denoting that sluggish agony of overbearing parents. The youth is gone. There is palpable loss. Now the house moves through lost and fragmented seasons. These are memories. I understand now. The prisoner is cursed to see the same reels over and over again, to know every frame, every word of a book he never really enjoyed, never ever valued. They re-entered the house an hour later, having discussed at length every half-remembered idea, every possible outcome. Tired and fed up, they acknowledged that, ghost or not, it could not hurt them, had not hurt them, and that they both needed to sleep. Sleep came fitful, restless, the dark consequence of a dressing gown hung on the door, the standard lamp that loomed with anthropomorphic intent. Every possible pareidolia, removed, folded, put away, lain flat on the floor away from morning's tired feet. They were not disturbed that night. Josh went to work the next day. Maggie gathered her laptop and headed to the local coffee shop. She enjoyed a few hours of peace and an expensive ciabatta sandwich, timing her return home with the arrival of Josh. They sat in silence in the kitchen, trying to gather the motivation to address the subject once again. I don't want to think about it to be honest, but all I can do is think about it. Josh had been sitting on the countertop, shoveling pesto pasta into his mouth. Once he'd eventually swallowed, he thought for a moment. Upstairs in the loft there are a bunch of suitcases, seems to be filled with paper, maybe work related to whatever the previous owner did? Maybe if we get rid of all that stuff and perhaps that will have an effect? Maggie pondered. It's just so arbitrary. Why is it that this manifestation, or manifestations in general, are fixed to a point? The Earth is travelling at 20,000 miles an hour through space. Gravity, light, heat, all of these forces at play. And this, 
whatever this is, is stuck in our house, in our attic, just standing around, waiting to scare someone. It's stupid. Remember when it moved from the dining room into the sitting room and we lost sight of it? Josh replied. Yeah. I was thinking maybe it's not a case that we only see them in dark places. It's that they can only be seen when ambient light is low. Perhaps they produce a very faint amount of light or distort light in such a way that they are more visible in low light. Perhaps they are often present in rooms, but we just don't see them. Maggie shivered. What if our presence in the house is a stimuli? If it's some sort of electromagnetic field that draws from ambient energy, even our presence, what if we are like a remote control that switches it on and off? Josh agreed, but, but is it sentient? If it's simply a rogue field or some physical natural phenomena that hasn't been identified, then we just ignore it. But there, there, are, there are human properties to it. The walk, Maggie gave a terrified, humorless grin. Yeah, the walking motion. Almost like it had a limp, but we couldn't see its feet. And, and the form. I'm trying to imagine this idea of a complex electrochemical process in the brain, this network of signals. Can that exist without a brain? Josh posited. Software without a computer, Maggie frowned. It doesn't work. It's, it's far more likely to be something completely unrelated to what we think it is. We have a need to fit it within the cultural trope, the ghost story or whatever. It may just go back to the infrasound thing. So you think it might be infrasound? Josh jumped down from the worktop and took Maggie's plate from her, beginning to wash it as she gestured ideas with her hands. No, I mean, it's our animal brain interpreting data received by our eyes. What if the information we receive is incomplete, or is not what we think we see, and our brains are interpreting this data, and what it decides is a collection of prehistoric surmising? It's a threat. Humans are usually the source of the threat, but really it's not anything like a person, it's just old hardware processing something unfamiliar. Josh agreed wholeheartedly. Ah, I like this. It's, it's probably our brains taking the information and superimposing preconceived ideas, subconscious fears of stuff hiding in the dark, because, well, predators always hide in the dark. At the end of the day, it's pretty basic. Me don't like dark place, me avoid. Josh made some tea for them both and they migrated to the dining room. They felt the tingle of apprehension despite faith in their perspective of what they had experienced. They sat opposite one another, the steam lifting above them, caught on a faint draught. They talked of how one might record information pertaining to such a thing. If the apparatus that ghost hunters employed in their hackneyed pseudoscience actually generated genuine data, then Maggie made a suggestion. Shall we try EVP? Josh googled it on his phone. Electronic voice phenomena. So we just ask a question whilst recording and then allow time for a response. Seems a little ridiculous, but okay, well, I'm willing to give it a go. Here or in the attic? Fuck no, she said. Here, I'm not going up there. Josh opened a recording app on his phone and placed it in the middle of the table. For a moment they remained silent, as though their desire to avoid the capricious nature of superstition had lapsed. Okay, Maggie said. Go on then. Josh hesitated. Are you... Is there anyone with us? He nodded as if to denote the movement of time, allowing space for an answer. He thought for a moment and asked another. Was this your home? Seconds passed. Do you wish to tell us anything important? They sat and waited and then Josh pressed the large stop button on his screen. He looked at her and she shrugged. He pressed play on the recording entry. Are you... Is there anyone with us? Silence. 
a shuffle of clothing, a sniff. Was this your home? Silence, impatient feet on the carpet. Do you wish to tell us anything important? There was a sound of breath. It was a hushed, angular sigh that passed over the phone with increasing and then diminishing volume. A gargled electronic timber. It felt like the sonic equivalent of a frustrated dream. The Kafka need to reach something but never quite achieving it. Like the futile attempt to focus on the floaters in your eyes. It carried with it a rage. A choking, organic, hopeless rage. Filtered through harmonics. Distortions in the mechanism that imprinted it within the recording. A clear and present hell. There are children in the dining room again. I cry out for them. I feel tears and sweat. I feel and forget. They are unknown to me, unknown to me now, that perhaps there was a time when they were bound within the fabric of me. My own children. They sat either end of the table like I once did with my own. There is much here. Vortices, ellipses, gyrations and paradigms, fields of influence. I can see them detonate, bloom and diminish an ever more beautiful timpani. Echoed resonation, irascible strata, wavelengths that dance and canter. They spring from wall sockets, the small object in the centre of the mahogany surface, from the two living people who call to it. I draw on this, on its vibrations, the infinitesimal shudder of particles. For my own form is lost in the wake of hydrogen and oxygen molecules, the spaces where nothing but I exist. There is sound, oral chaos, a cacophony of buzzing like bees. At first it is a din of angular wounds with no pain. Sounds without meanings form words reverberating against surfaces into a repeating, relentless phrase. Was this your home? Yes, 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 I scream, I scream again and again. The will to be more than an emptiness. The will to exist is more than reels of undeveloped film. I cry out, scream without breath, without lungs, without a mouth, and the sheer tenacity to manifest. The minute components of air take notice of me, bow and recede for me. They jostle into waveform, they mime the presence of sound. My voice is manifest. Help. Maggie had felt fear, but fear had had its time to glower. There had been sleep-deprived nights since the recording, the consequence of a single word that had coalesced a lifetime of sorrowful moments, a chorus of tiny agonies collected together and suddenly bright and clear. The wish to tell the world she was lonely, the delirious, frightening seconds after waking, where her body was alien to her. That night on the beach when she was fifteen, crying for an absent father. There was a loosening of her conscious self with her own flesh, an uncoupling. She was no longer steadfast, no longer anchored. She was one of a few who now understood that life was a permutation, a chrysalis stage, an open-ended conversation. She developed an entire philosophy from this encounter with a single word. A single fucking word. Josh had tried with limited success to rationalise their experience. He had spent nights and work hours searching out professors at universities with departments with projects that might offer him some guidance. He had discovered with increasing despair that the academic world had no time for such frivolities. 
He waded through internet forums, posting endless pleas for those who might be able to attribute a decent explanation to the presence in their house. He had taken to walking to the second closest overground station from work, giving him an extra 15 minutes of time to think, to move his legs. He would browse the science sections in bookstores, tracing his fingers over spines as though dowsing for a volume that might explain away their unwanted lodger. He piled some dense and unreadable quantum theory books upon one another and made for the counter, finally plucking up the courage to ask the question he had avoided until now. Um, do you have any books on uh, a scientific approach to hauntings? The cashier did not blink, didn't mock him with a side-glancing eye, had thought for a moment before shaking their head. Have you tried the Lima round the corner? They, they do a bunch of stuff like that. Drizzle rain spat at him with half-hearted patter as he stood outside a small bookshop that he had never noticed before. It wasn't particularly odd or out of place, the paintwork was peeling white gloss, the sign was cheerful, it did not shout hocus pocus. There were books on display in the window that spoke of esoteric knowledge, of hidden meanings and flights of black magic, spelled with an ostentatious K. He hesitated at the door. He had gone out of his way to avoid such avenues, and yet his reams of emails to scholarly types had fallen on deaf ears. He stepped in begrudgingly, expecting and being rewarded with the tinkle of a doorbell. The sales assistant was around 50, a slight woman with a short bowl haircut and black rimmed glasses on a cord that draped around the back of her neck. She smiled coldly. He gave a shy hello before stealing himself. I have a problem. <laughs> Don't we all? She smiled more warmly. Ha, yes, well, my problem is a little more, he glanced back at the book titles, esoteric. Maybe I can help, she tilted her head as if to offer him the floor. We have uh, what you could describe as a haunting. It's a manifestation, well, the, the top part of him. We think it's a him. We've been trying to find logical explanations for the presence, but we've exhausted practical means. The hypothetical explanations don't offer answers. You see, if it's some sort of quantum entanglement, perhaps a state of energy connected to our home, this doesn't do anything. I can't tell it that it's a state of energy caught in a flux because I, I don't think it cares why it's there, but it, it asked us. It asked us for help. The words had gushed from him. He apologised. She walked around the counter and made for a particular shelf. She knew each and every book, he imagined. Many people dismiss the books we sell as hogwash, and I must admit a lot of it is. Most of these books are doing what you are attempting to do, make sense of the world. Sometimes those seeking truth are taken astray by fame for their ideas, or by money, or by greed, or power. Some were mad and their madness was infectious. Some came across the right answers and built civilizations with them. Others killed for them, but many still do in the name of faith for one god or another. All want to know why. Science came from this need to know and with better tools and brighter minds we found the right paths. She picked up a book and hesitantly held it against her chest as though she were protecting it. Science is the magic of the real. I firmly believe in that, but I also believe that many have stumbled upon the right answers, yet lacked the right tools to quantify what they knew. She handed him the book. It wasn't particularly old. The dust jacket was dog-eared and tired. The title read, In Case of Hauntings by Hendon Arkwright. He flipped through the book. It looked to all intents and purposes like a manual for a hi-fi from the 1970s. He glanced at the inside cover. 
£100 was pencilled in the bottom left-hand corner. Shit, he said. Sorry, forgive me. Ah, yes, uh, these aren't common books and we don't sell a great deal, she shrugged. Do you take cards? he said enthusiastically. An hour later, the day drawn much to a close. Rain fell pleasantly against the windows of the train. Josh sat with the book across his lap. Any apprehensions fell away as he pored over the tale that was uncomfortably familiar to his own. As if in possession of some vital secret thing, he unconsciously shielded the book from the few passengers he shared the carriage with, who paid him no attention. As the train continued along the tracks, rattling rhythmically, he allayed his motion sickness and devoured the book. The opening paragraph spoke of a peculiar encounter that had sent the protagonist on a search for a tangible response to a supernatural event. The projection, as I have come to call it, was of a young girl. She was as clear and as real to me as anyone I might pass on the street. However, her clothes were decidedly period. Her appearances were at first fleeting. I would hear a laugh, a giggle, and the impression of a pale shape on the edge of my peripheral vision. It wasn't long before she was standing before me in closer and closer proximity. When she upped and walked through the living room wall, I knew that either I had lost my mind or I was indeed being haunted. Neither explanations were satisfactory, and so began my study of the phenomenon. Josh opened up a folded printed page, which showed a series of quaint line drawings, depicting towering dated computational apparatus besides a large, sealed, airtight cuboid. Two metres tall, two wide and four long. A cutaway revealed that this tank, for want of a better word, was equipped with various sensors that would measure temperature fluctuations, airflow, sound frequencies, and most importantly, what was described as Raman spectroscopy a network of mirrors and a laser. Josh paused and searched the term Raman spectroscopy on his phone, contemplating flippantly whether it had anything to do with noodles. The laser light interacts with molecular vibrations, phonons or other excitations in the system, resulting in the energy of the laser photons being shifted up or down. He gathered a basic understanding. The equipment would analyse the structure of that which passed through the laser. The room would be pumped full of argon gas, which was inert and would not affect the results of the experiments. Much of this went over Josh's head, but he found Arkwright's method encouraging. He continued to read. As if in reaction to the presence of my equipment, the projection did not appear for a few days. I went out of my way to make sure I was present in the house, frequenting the rooms where I had seen her on numerous occasions. At first I believed this to be a sign that either this manifestation was unable to pass through the walls of the chamber, I was indeed suffering from a neurological disorder, or perhaps evidence that the projection had a degree of agency. For a number of pages, the experiment was monitored without any recorded results. A week into the study and the projection finally moved through the sealed chamber. Although what I recorded was at first negligible, in time a noticeable displacement was detected. Information was obtained that identified a tangible presence. What is baffling is that in a sealed environment, the projection is moving the molecules in its path, but it does not appear to consist of a measurable mass or indeed have any recognisable properties. My projection does not consist of any known form of radiation, holds no mass or structure, and in fact could be described as the absence of such. Josh flipped forward a few pages to a second fold-out illustration. In the diagram, Arkwright had built a series of lasers to measure how light interacted with the projection. In his hypothesis, 
I believe that by analysing whether the projection interacts with light, I will be able to ascertain whether it is indeed a physical presence in our universe. The picture described four lasers reflecting off a large mirror. A refractometer measured whether the light was bent by the presence of the projection. Another few days passed before the projection manifested in the path of the lasers. Whilst passing through, the light was seen to refract by a few degrees. Presence of the projection has an effect on physical matter and energy. There is no doubting this, although I am yet to record any electromagnetic radiation present. Whatever the projection is made of, it produces no recordable radiation of any sort. I liken this to the study of dark matter, in that it is hypothesized that the universe lacks visible mass, and this missing mass is attributed to a form of matter that simply cannot be seen or measured. Josh recognised the term dark matter. He made a note of this and continued reading. A bold move, but I have a hypothesis. I believe that the projection is an echo of an event, a recording, like that on magnetic tape, that exists outside of our perception of reality. I believe that what I am witnessing is the physical effects of the presence of this undetectable exotic matter upon which our projection is imprinted. My interaction with it is presumed sentience, but I am loath to admit to such complexities. Like a computer program, the projection reacts to input, yet I believe that this is little more than parroting what has already occurred when this person lived. Josh put down the book. He felt almost a sense of disappointment. The projection was nothing more than a form of interactive recording. But how? Again, he lacked the acumen to be able to add anything to the hypothesis, although it did seem to make sense. He shook his head and continued to read. That humans are able to comprehend so little of the light spectrum, that it is highly likely that there are extra dimensions that we are unable to perceive, and that energy might indeed imprint itself like audio and video signals into an electromagnetic field that interacts with our reality, I hazard a guess that ghosts are indeed simply these energy signals. They act like an imprint, often repeating the same task, the same interactions, triggered in some way by the presence of stimuli. They are the very essence of an echo, given form beyond mere sound. Maggie did not feel the need to quantify the experience. Her new state was absolute. She wished to know this in an intimate fashion. It was almost an emotional resonance, a scent that triggered a memory or deja vu. Her experience had not needed explaining beyond their initial speculation. However this presence had formed, it was a real experience, the very condensation of a life. An explanation would simply deteriorate what she had learned from it. Josh's pursuit was his own and she loved him for this, and yet it offered her nothing. For her, the need to answer its call became paramount. The attic was the warmest part of the house. No longer abject, it offered her a place of tranquillity, a place to commune with that silence. In here she would sit at the window, back against the side wall, feet upon the other, her phone in hand. She would talk into the mic, simple questions, repeated questions, and a great deal of silence for her companion to occupy. Hours of unanswered requests did not deter her. She left the recorder on, propped against the wall that cut the room partially in half, and explored the stored and later forgotten items at the back. She lifted each piece of clothing, dated, drab and uncomfortable suits, formal shoes, scuffed and worn. The suitcases, however, were of interest. As Josh had correctly identified, the contents of which were work documents for an accounting firm in the late 1970s. But once she had collected the reams of printouts on dated green line continuous stationery, beneath this was a life. 
Medical records, formal letters, keepsakes, a small fluffy E.T. the extraterrestrial, a gold-plated football trophy, a photo ID for a telecommunications business. The face that stared at her was young, maybe mid-thirties, receding hair, a blonde moustache. He had a kind face. There were no journals, no diaries, no half-finished love letters. It was no find that would give this man a story. She dug to the bottom, a monster finger puppet, two dominoes and a blood donor card. A letter spoke of an appointment with a thoracic oncologist. She took the letter back to the window and sat with it. She imagined receiving this might have invoked a strong emotional reaction, some kind of permanent tether, a letter that decided future events, future dire discoveries. She opened a new recording file and asked another question. Were you unwell? She waited a few moments and played back the message. There was a swoon of static and electric words followed. She felt a jolt, a need to flee. She steadied herself. She stayed. The words were quiet. She played it again. Were you unwell? I am unwell. She pressed record again. How do you feel? I am scared. Where are you? I am here. I am scared. Help me. How can I help you? Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. The room seemed to inhale. At the point against the half wall where Josh had seen the apparition once before, flowered a cloud of static, a distortion in her eyes. She felt all the blood rush to her ears, that woozy, muffled, nauseating sense before you faint. And it was there before her, and it was moving. A bloom, an unfolding, taut petals of a person, pulling itself from nothing. A face of anguish, half thought, half visible, barely realised. Rivulets of ether made manifest, rushing toward her, stumps that birthed wrists and fingers, like someone were breathing air into it. And soon it was half a person, a gathered cloth thrown outward, given purpose, screaming a silent, endless torrent at her, all at her. In the attic I watched them pile up the remains of me. Now a crow pecks through the carcass. She is not gentle, and she does not know the pain. I don't remember each item. I don't know why I even know these are my belongings, but I know they are not hers. I see without eyes, without ears, I hear. I know this tale. Man lives. Man feels a hollow pain. Not unlike that which I feel now, an endless crystallised pain. Shards of glass keenly placed against the heart that never heals, that sits on the edge of implosion. I am like a shard forever held at the point of injury, the point of cutting, held in the event horizon of a collapsing life. The children come to this room and find old toys to play with. There was a rocking horse here. There is a rocking horse here again. The children play. I am absent. I would put her on the rocking horse and we would sing together. They are gone. What, what was that song? Stop. I remember now. The room is slipping again. There are too many cuts, too many angular serrations. Moving so fast, blown out, burned. I feel sick. The same sickness that preceded that final stabbing pain that never left me. I am here, I am here, and I want to go. I want to get off. I want to stop hurting. Were you unwell? I am unwell. I, I feel sick. I feel a pain across my chest forever. How do you feel? 
I am scared and I've been scared for so long. Where are you? I'm here. I am scared. Please help me. I cannot do this anymore. How can I help you? Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, please, please help me, help me. I see without eyes and hear without ears. I am talking to someone, the crow. She speaks, she asks me, please help me, please. I don't want to feel this pain anymore. Maggie screamed and fled, barreling down the stairs. She cowered at the furthest point from the attic, against the back wall of the dining room. She then broke free and turned on the overhead light, the lamp in the corner. She wanted to feel enveloped in light. She returned to the imagined safety of the corner, sinking down, a blur of regret and anger at herself, somehow thinking she might have conquered this with love and understanding. She watched the door as it opened of its own accord. She felt the inhalation again, the consumption of heat in the atmosphere. She shouted, stop, but she could see nothing. The lights! She switched off the lamp at the plug and made for the main light switch and turned. Hidden in the light, revealed in the gloom, it was there again, facing away from her, turning slowly toward her. Its face was a mass of incomplete, shifting facets of light, flakes of translucent skin shed and recombined, as though it were attempting to remember itself. The eyes were sunken black, and at the same time, eyes looked out at her, cold, predatory, sad, desperate. It was a dithering mass of memories, actualising and forgetting, a terrifying half-person, its clothes like a flipbook of a thousand days, a thousand iterations, cold blue figments, frozen, melting, frozen, and at once gaseous. It moved with that same limping gait, a leg now materialised, a hand reaching out. She pushed the door wide and ran from the room, and she shouted, No! You have to stop! You are scaring me! It was now in the lounge, flickering, withering, expelling particles of itself that would blink out. Its gaze remained on her, shifting hairline, shifting facial hair, weight lost and gained and lost with ever-increasing severity, broad glasses that would form and dissolve, days, repeated actions embedding itself into the weave of space-time, leaving a shadow burned into the negative, into the strata that knew of us. She fumbled for her phone and pulled it from the deep pocket in her baggy sweatshirt. She flicked to the recording app. I can't help you. You don't exist anymore. She motioned the moving of time with her hand. She saw it mouth words. She rewound the recording and the same electric cadence uttered forth. I exist. I am here. I was here. You were here, but you aren't alive anymore. I am sorry. So sorry you died. You had cancer and you died. I had cancer and I died. The room sighed, and he was gone. Maggie sat in the lounge, curled up against a stack of cushions. The familiar click of the door, the muscular resentment of a silence broken, the repetition of a life pinned to routine. She flinched as he kissed her head. He handed her a book as he removed his coat, hanging it on the coat rack. Tea? He made for the kitchen. Maggie lifted the book and read the cover. At first she was instantly dismissive, placing it beside her. She returned her gaze to the book and opened the cover. She read the first few lines before lifting it onto her lap. The sound of water boiling, the ruffle of the tea bags lifted from the box, the clink of spoon against ceramic, 
He returned with the tea, placing a mug before her, and she noticed the slogan on its side. I'm afraid no ghosts was emblazoned upon it. She smiled faintly. I wanted you to see that book because the author had the same experience as us. He spent years attempting to document his haunting. He even recorded measurable data. I know you don't care, but I do care. I saw him. I saw him clearly. He came for me. He came for you? She handed him the letter from the oncologist. I think he had cancer. I saw him and he looked... He'd been ill at some point, really ill. He withered away in this house. Did he hurt you? No, I don't think he can. He was... The ghost of him, he was everything he had ever been. Like a scrapbook of a person. He's not a demon or whatever. It's not the exorcist. It's a, it's a person. What we see is scary, but the intent behind that apparition... The intent is human. Josh nodded. Yeah, I guess, but maybe what we experience isn't consciousness. Not real consciousness. It's the echo of consciousness. It's the last recorded file. The last imprint of a mind. She looks sad. He is in pain and he is scared. Josh sighed. And he has been and will be forever. If you enjoyed this audio drama, you may be interested to know I have two books currently available at alexcf.bigcartel.com. The first is a novel entitled Seek the Throat from Which We Sing, a visceral tale of animal mythology in the vein of Watership Down and the Secret of Nim. The second is an accompanying full-colour illustrated encyclopedia called The Arata, a compendium of the cultures and creeds of Nar. I hope to create more audio dramas, so if you enjoyed this, please let me know. Thanks.